Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash Support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Tonight, I will be reading Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 All happy families resemble one another. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Everything was upset in the Oblonsky's house. The wife had discovered an intrigue between her husband and their former French governess and declared that she would not continue to live under the same roof with him. This state of things had now lasted for three days and not only the husband and wife, but the rest of the family and the whole household suffered from it. They all felt that there was no sense in their living together and that any group of people who had met together by chance at an inn would have had more in common than they. The wife kept to her own rooms, the husband stopped away from home all day, the children ran about all over the house uneasily, the English governess quarreled with the housekeeper and wrote to a friend asking if she could find her another situation. The cook had gone out just at dinner time the day before and had not returned and the kitchen maid and coachman had given notice. On the third day, after his quarrel with his wife, Prince Stepan Arkadyevich Oblonsky, Steva, as he was called in his set in society, woke up at his usual time, eight o'clock, not in his wife's bedroom, but on the Morocco leather-covered sofa in his study. He turned his plump, well-kept body over on the springy sofa, 
as if he wished to have another long sleep, and tightly embracing one of the pillows, leant his cheek against it, and then suddenly opened his eyes and sat up. Let me see. What was it, he thought, trying to recall his dream. What was it? Oh, yes. Alabin was giving a dinner party in Darmstadt. No, not in Darmstadt, but somewhere in America. Oh, yes. Darmstadt was in America, and Alabin was giving the party. The dinner was served on glass tables, yes, and the tables sang Il Mio Tesoro. No, not exactly Il Mio Tesoro, but something better than that. And then there were some kind of little decanters that were really women. His eyes sparkled merrily, and he smiled as he sat thinking. Yes, it was very nice. There were many other delightful things which I just can't get hold of. Can't catch now I'm awake. Then noticing a streak of light that had made its way in at the side of the blind, he let down his legs and felt about with his feet for his slippers finished with bronze kid, last year's birthday present embroidered by his wife. And from nine years' habit, he stretched out his arm, without rising, towards where his dressing gown usually hung in their bedroom. And then he suddenly remembered that, and why, he was not sleeping there, but in his study. A smile vanished from his face, and he frowned. Oh, dear, 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 he groaned, recalling what had happened. And the details of his quarrel with his wife, his inextricable position, and worst of all, his guilt, rose up in his imagination. No, she will never forgive me. She can't forgive me. And the worst thing about it is that it's all my own fault. My own fault. And yet, I'm not guilty. That's the tragedy of it, he thought. Oh dear, oh dear, he muttered despairingly, as he recalled the most painful details of the quarrel. The worst moment had been when, returning home from the theatre, merry and satisfied, with an enormous pear in his hand for his wife, he did not find her in the drawing room, nor, to his great surprise, in the study, but at last saw her in her bedroom with the unlucky note which had betrayed him in her hand. She sat there, the careworn, ever-bustling, and, as he thought, rather simple dolly, with a note in her hand and a look of terror, despair, and anger on her face. What is this? This, she asked, pointing to the note. And, as often happens, it was not so much the memory of the event that tormented him, as of the way he had replied to her. At that moment, there had happened to him what happens to most people when unexpectedly caught in some shameful act. He had not had time to assume an expression suitable to the position in which he stood toward his wife, now that his guilt was discovered. Instead of taking offence, denying, making excuses, asking forgiveness, or even remaining indifferent, anything would have been better than what he did. He involuntarily, reflex action of the brain, thought Oblonsky, who was fond of physiology, smiled his usual kindly and therefore silly smile. He could not forgive himself for that silly smile. Dolly, seeing it, shuddered as if with physical pain, and with her usual vehemence, burst into a torrent of cruel words and rushed from the room. Since then, she'd refused to see him. It's all the fault of that stupid smile, thought Oblonsky. What am I to do? What can I do? He asked himself in despair and could find no answer. Chapter 2 Oblonsky was truthful with himself. He was incapable of self-deception and could not persuade himself that he repented of his conduct. He could not feel repentant that he, a handsome, amorous man of thirty-four, was not in love with his wife, the mother of five living and two dead children, and only a year younger than himself. He repented only of not having managed to conceal his conduct from her. Nevertheless, he felt his unhappy position and pitied his wife, his children. And himself. He might perhaps have been able to hide things from her had he known that the knowledge would so distress her. He had never clearly considered the matter, but had a vague notion that his wife had long suspected him of being unfaithful and winked at it. He even thought that she, who was nothing but an excellent mother of a family, worn out, already growing elderly, no longer pretty, and in no way remarkable, in fact, quite an ordinary woman, ought to be lenient to him if only from a sense of justice. It turned out that the very opposite was the case. 
How awful. Oh dear, how awful, Oblonsky kept repeating to himself, and could arrive at no conclusion. And how well everything was going till now. How happily we lived. She was contented, happy in her children. I never interfered with her, but left her to fuss over them in the household as she pleased. Of course, it's not quite nice that she had been a governess in our house. That's bad. There's something banal, a want of taste in carrying on with one's governess. But then, what a governess. He vividly pictured to himself Mademoiselle Roland's roguish black eyes and her smile. Besides, as long as she was in the house, I never took any liberties. The worst of the matter is that she is already. Why need it all happen at once? Oh dear. What am I to do? He could find no answer, except life's usual answer to the most complex and insoluble questions. That answer is, live in the needs of the day, that is, find forgetfulness. He could no longer find forgetfulness in sleep, at any rate, not before night, could not go back to the music and the songs of the little decanter women. Consequently, he must seek forgetfulness in the dream of life. We'll see when the time comes, thought Oblonsky, and got up, put on his grey dressing gown lined with blue silk, tied the cords, and, drawing a full breath of air into his broad chest, went with his usual firm tread toward the window, turning out his feet that carried his stout body so lightly, drew up the blind, and rang loudly. The bell was answered immediately by his old friend and valet, Matvey, who brought in his clothes, boots, and a telegram. He was followed by the barber with a shaving tackle. Any papers from the office? asked Oblonsky, as he took the telegram and sat down before the looking glass. They're on your table, answered Matvey, with a questioning and sympathizing glance at his master. Adding after a pause with a sly smile, someone has called from the job masters. Oblonsky did not answer, but glanced at Matvey's face in the looking glass. From their looks, as they met in the glass, it was evident that they understood one another. Oblonsky's look seemed to say, why do you tell me that? As if you don't know. Matvey put his hands into the pocket of his jacket, put out his foot, and looked at his master with a slight, good-humoured smile. I ordered him to come the Sunday after next, and not to trouble you or himself needlessly till then, he said, evidently repeating a sentence he had prepared. Oblonsky understood that Matvey meant to have a joke and draw attention to himself. He tore open the telegram and read it, guessing at the words which as so often happens in telegrams, were misspelled, and his face brightened. Matvey, my sister Anna Arkadyevna is coming tomorrow, he said, motioning away for a moment the shiny, plump hand of the barber, which was shaving a rosy path between his long, curly whiskers. The Lord be thanked, said Matvey, proving by his answer that he knew just as well as his master the importance of this visit, namely that Anna Arkadyevna Stefan Arkadyevich's favourite sister, might help to reconcile the husband and wife. Is she coming alone or with Mr. Karenin? Oblonsky could not answer as the barber was busy with his upper lip, but he raised one finger and Matvey nodded to him in the glass. Alone. Would you like one of the upstairs rooms got ready? Ask Daria Alexandrovna. Daria Alexandrovna? Matvey repeated as if in doubt. Yes. Tell her. Give her the telegram and see what she says. You won't have a try at her, was what Matvey meant. But he only said, Yes, sir. Oblonsky was washed, his hair brushed, and he was about to dress, when Matvey, stepping slowly in his creaking boots, re-entered the room with the telegram in his hand. The barber was no longer there. Daria Alexandrovna told me to say that she is going away. He may do as he pleases, that is, as you please, sir, he said laughing with his eyes only. And, putting his hands in his pockets, with his head on one side, he gazed at his master. Oblonsky remained silent. Then a kind and rather pathetic smile appeared on his handsome face. Ah, Matvey, he said, shaking his head. Never mind, sir. Things will shape themselves. Shape themselves, eh? Just so, sir. Do you think so? Who's that? asked Oblonsky hearing the rustle of a woman's dress outside the door. It's me, sir, answered a firm and pleasant woman's voice. And Matriana, the children's nurse, thrust her stern, pockmarked face in at the door.
What is it, Natriana? asked Oblonsky, stepping out to her. Although he was entirely guilty and was conscious of it, almost everyone in the house, even the nurse, Daria Alexandrovna's best friend, sided with him. What is it? he said mournfully. Why don't you go and try again, sir? By God's grace, you might make it up. She suffers dreadfully. It's pitiful to see her. And everything in the house is topsy-turvy. You should consider the children. Own up, sir. It can't be helped. There's no joy without. But she won't admit me. Do your part. God is merciful. Pray to him, sir. Pray to him. All right. Now go, said Oblonsky, suddenly blushing. I must get dressed, said he, turning to Matvey, and he resolutely threw off his dressing gown. Matvey blew some invisible speck off the shirt, which he held ready gathered up like a horse's collar, and with evident pleasure invested with it, his master's carefully tended body. Chapter 3 When he was quite dressed, Oblonsky sprinkled some scent on himself, pulled down his cuffs, and, as usual, distributing in different pockets his cigarette case, matches, pocketbook, and the watch with its double chain and bunch of charms. He shook out his handkerchief, and feeling clean, sweet, healthy, and physically bright in spite of his misfortune, went with a slight spring in each step into the dining room, where his coffee stood ready. Beside the coffee lay letters and papers from the office. He read the letters, one of which impressed him unpleasantly. It concerned the sale of a forest on his wife's estate, and came from a dealer who wanted to buy that forest. This forest had to be sold, but until he was reconciled with his wife, the sale was out of the question. What was most unpleasant was that a financial consideration would now be mixed up with the impending reconciliation. The idea that he might be biased by that consideration, might seek a reconciliation in order to sell the forest, offended him. Having looked through his letters, Oblonsky drew the departmental papers toward him, and turning over the pages of two files made a few notes on them with a big pencil, then pushing them aside, began to drink his coffee. At the same time, he unfolded the still damp morning paper and began reading. Oblonsky subscribed to and read a liberal paper, not an extreme liberal paper, but one that expressed the opinions of the majority. And although neither science, art, nor politics especially interested him, he firmly held to the opinions of the majority and of his paper on those subjects, changing his views when the majority changed theirs, or rather, not changing them. They changed imperceptibly of their own accord. Oblonsky's tendency and opinions were not his by deliberate choice. They came of themselves, just as he did not choose the fashion of his hats or coats, but wore those of the current style. Living in a certain social set and having a desire, such as generally develops with maturity, for some kind of mental activity, he was obliged to hold views, just as he was obliged to have a hat. If he had a reason for preferring liberalism to the conservatism of many in his set, it was not that he considered liberalism more reasonable, but because it suited his manner of life better. The Liberal Party maintained that everything in Russia was bad, and it was a fact that Oblonsky had many debts and decidedly too little money. The Liberal Party said that marriage was an obsolete institution which ought to be reformed, and family life really gave Oblonsky very little pleasure, forcing him to tell lies and dissemble, which was quite contrary to his nature. The Liberal Party said, or rather hinted, that religion was only good as a check on the more barbarous portion of the population, and Oblonsky really could not stand through even a short church service without pain in his feet, nor understand why one should use all that dreadful high-flown language about another world, while one can live so merrily in this one. Besides, Oblonsky was fond of a pleasant joke, and sometimes liked to perplex a simple-minded man by observing that if you're going to be proud of your ancestry, why stop short at Prince Rurik and repudiate your oldest ancestor, the ape? Thus liberalism became habitual to Oblonsky, and he loved his paper as he loved his after-dinner cigar for the slight mistiness produced in his brain. He read the leading article, which explained that in our time it is needless to raise the cry that radicalism is threatening to swallow up all conservative elements, and to maintain that the government should try measures to crush the hydra of revolution. For on the contrary, in our opinion, the danger lies not in an imaginary hydra of revolution, but in an obstinate clinging to tradition, 
which hampers progress, etc. He also read the finance article in which Bentham and Mill were mentioned and hits were made at the ministry. With his natural quickness of perception, he understood the meaning of each hit, whence it came, for whom it was meant, and what had provoked it, and this, as usual, gave him a certain satisfaction. But today, the satisfaction was marred by the memory of Matriana's advice, and of the fact that there was all this trouble in the house. He went on to read that there was a rumour of Count Bo's journey to Wiesbaden, that there would be no more grey hairs, that a light brougham was for sale, and a young person offered her services. But all this information did not give him the quiet, ironical pleasure it usually did. Having finished the paper, his second cup of coffee, and a buttered roll, he got up, flicked some crumbs off his waistcoat, and expanding his broad chest, smiled joyfully, not because there was anything especially pleasant in his mind. No. The smile was but the result of a healthy digestion. But that joyful smile at once brought everything back to his mind, and he grew thoughtful. Then he heard the sound of two childish voices outside the door, and recognised them as the voices of his eldest daughter, Tanya and his little boy, Grisha. They were dragging something along and had upset it. I told you not to put passengers on the roof, the girl shouted in English. Now pick them up. Everything is disorganized, thought Oblonsky. Here, the children are running wild, and going to the door, he called them in. They left the box, which represented a train, and came to their father. The girl, her father's pet, ran boldly in, embraced him, and hung laughing on his neck, pleased, as she always was to smell the familiar scent of his whiskers. Having kissed his face, flushed by stooping and lit up by tenderness, the girl unclasped her hands and was going to run away, but he held her back. How's Mama? he asked, passing his hand over his daughter's smooth, delicate little neck, as he smilingly said good morning in answer to the little boy's greeting. He was conscious of not caring as much for the boy as for the girl, but he did his best to treat them both alike. The boy felt this and did not respond to his father's cold smile. Mama, she's up, said the girl. Oblonsky sighed. That means she has again not slept all night, he thought. Yes, but is she cheerful, he added. The girl knew that her father and mother had quarreled, and that her mother could not be cheerful, and also that her father must know this, so that his putting the question to her so lightly was all pretense, and she blushed for him. He noticed this and blushed too. I don't know, she said. She said we were not to have any lessons, but we must walk with Miss Hull to Grandmama's. Well, you may go, my little Tanyakin. Oh, wait, he said, still holding her and stroking her little delicate hand. Taking a box of sweets from the mantelpiece where he had put it the day before, he chose two sweets which he knew she liked best, a chocolate and a coloured cream. For Grisha, she asked, holding out the chocolate. Yes, yes. And stroking her shoulder, he kissed her hair at the roots and her neck and let her go. The carriage is ready, said Matvey. And there is a woman on business waiting for you. Been here long? About half an hour. How often must I tell you to let me know at once when anyone is here? But I must give you time to finish your coffee, answered Matvey, in his friendly, rude tone, with which it was impossible to be angry. Well, ask her in at once, said Oblonsky his face wrinkling with vexation. The woman, widow of a petty official named Galenin, was petitioning for something impossible and absurd. But nevertheless, Oblonsky, with his usual politeness, asked her to sit down and heard her attentively to the end, gave her full instructions how and to whom to apply, and even wrote briskly and fluently in his large, graceful and legible hand a little note to a personage who might be of use to her. Having dismissed her, he took his hat and paused to consider whether he had forgotten something. He found he had forgotten nothing, but what he wanted to forget, his wife. Oh yes, his head dropped, and his handsome face became worried. To go or not to go, he asked himself, and his inner consciousness answered that he ought not to go, that it could only result in hypocrisy that it was impossible to restore their relations because it was impossible to render her attractive and capable of exciting love, or to turn him into an old man incapable of love. Nothing except hypocrisy and falsehood can now result. And these were repugnant to his nature. Nevertheless, it will have to be done sooner or later. After all, 
Things can't remain as they are, he said, trying to brace himself. He expanded his chest, took out a cigarette, lit it, took two whiffs, then threw it into a pearl-shell ashtray, and crossing the drawing room with rapid steps, he opened the door which led to his wife's bedroom. Chapter 4 Darya Alexandrovna was there in a dressing jacket, with her large, frightened eyes, made more prominent by the emaciation of her face, and her knotted thin plaits of once luxurious and beautiful hair. The room was covered with scattered articles, and she was standing among them before an open wardrobe, where she was engaged in selecting something. Hearing her husband's step, she stopped and looked at the door, vainly trying to assume a severe and contemptuous expression. She felt that she was afraid of him, and afraid of the impending interview. She was trying to do what she had attempted ten times already during these three days, to sort out her own and her children's clothes to take to her mother's, but she could not bring herself to do it, and said again, as she had done after each previous attempt, that things could not remain as they were, that she must do something to punish and humiliate him, and to revenge herself, if only for a small part of the pain he had caused her. She still kept saying that she would leave him, but felt that this was impossible. It was impossible because she could not get out of the habit of regarding him as her husband and of loving him. Besides, she felt that if here, in her own home, it was all she could do to look after her five children properly, it would be still worse where she meant to take them. As it was, during these three days, the youngest had fallen ill because they had given him sour broth, and the others had had hardly any dinner yesterday. She felt that it was impossible for her to leave, but still, deceiving herself, she went on sorting the things and pretending that she really would go. On seeing her husband, she thrust her arms into a drawer of the wardrobe, as if looking for something, and only when he had come close to her did she turn her face toward him. But her face, which she wanted to seem stern and determined, expressed only perplexity and suffering. Dolly, he said in a soft, timid voice. He drew his head down, wishing to look pathetic and submissive, but all the same he shone with freshness and health. With a rapid glance, she took in his fresh and healthy figure from head to foot. Yes, he's happy and contented, she thought. But what about me? And that horrid good nature of his, which people love and praise so, how I hate it. She pressed her lips together, and a cheek muscle twitched on the right side of her pale and nervous face. What do you want, she said quickly, in a voice unlike her usual deep tones. Dolly, he repeated unsteadily. Anna is coming today. What's that to do with me? I can't receive her, she exclaimed. But after all, Dolly, you really must, said he. Go away, go away, she cried, as if in physical pain without looking at him. Oblonsky could think calmly of his wife, could hope that things would shape themselves as Matvey had said, and could calmly read his paper and drink his coffee. But when he saw her worn, suffering face and heard her tone, resigned, despairing. He felt a choking sensation. A lump rose to his throat and tears glistened in his eyes. Oh my God, what have I done? Dolly, for heaven's sakes. You know, he could not continue. His throat was choked with sobs. She slammed the doors of the wardrobe and looked up at him. Dolly, what can I say? Only forgive me. Think, nine years. Can't they atone for a momentary... A momentary. Her eyes drooped and she waited to hear what he would say, as if entreating him to persuade her somehow that she had made a mistake. A momentary infatuation, he said, and was going on. But at those words her lips tightened again as if with pain, and again the muscle in her right cheek began to twitch. Go away. Go away from here, she cried in a still shriller voice, and don't talk to me of your infatuations and all those horrors. She wished to go away, but staggered and held on to the back of a chair to support herself. His face broadened, his lips swelled, and his eyes filled with tears. Dolly, he said, now actually sobbing. For heaven's sake, think of the children. They have done nothing. Punish me. Make me suffer for my sin. Tell me what to do. I'm ready for anything. I'm the guilty one. I have no words to express my guilt. But Dolly, forgive me. She sat down and he could hear her loud, heavy breathing. He felt unutterably sorry for her. She tried again and again to speak and could not. He waited. You think of our children when you want to play with them, but I'm always thinking of them. and know they are ruined now, she said, 
evidently repeating one of the phrases she had used to herself again and again during those three days. But she had spoken of our children, and looking gratefully at her, he moved to take her hand. But she stepped aside with a look of repugnance. I do think of the children. I would do anything in the world to save them. But I do not know how to save them, whether by taking them away from their father or by leaving them with a dissolute, yes, a dissolute father. Tell me, do you think it is possible for us to live together after what has happened? Is it possible? Say, is it possible? She repeated, raising her voice. When my husband, the father of my children, has love affairs with his children's governess. But what's to be done? What's to be done, said he in a piteous voice, hardly knowing what he was saying and sinking his head lower and lower. You're horrid and disgusting to me, she shouted, getting more and more excited. Your tears are water. You never loved me. You have no heart, no honour. To me, you are detestable, disgusting, a stranger. Yes, a perfect stranger. She uttered that word stranger, so terrible to herself, with anguish and hatred. He looked at her, and the hatred he saw in her face frightened and surprised him. He did not understand that his pity exasperated her. She saw in him pity for herself, but not love. No, she hates me. She will not forgive me, he thought. It is awful, awful, he muttered. At that moment, a child began to cry in another room, probably having tumbled down. Daria listened, and her face softened suddenly. She seemed to be trying to recollect herself, as if she did not know where she was or what she had to do. Then she rose quickly and moved toward the door. After all, she loves my child, he thought, noticing the change in her face when the baby cried. My child. Then how can she hate me? Dolly, just a word, he said, following her. If you follow me, I shall call the servants and the children. I'll let everyone know you're a scoundrel. I'm going away today, and you may live here with your mistress. She went out, slamming the door. Oblonsky sighed, wiped his face, and with soft steps left the room. Matvey says things will shape themselves. But how? I don't even see a possibility. Oh dear, the horror of it. And her shouting. It was so vulgar, he thought, recalling her screams and the words scoundrel and mistress. And the maids may have heard it. It is dreadfully banal. Dreadfully. For a few seconds, Oblodsky stood alone. Then he wiped his eyes, sighed, and expanding his chest, went out of the room. It was a Friday, the day on which a German clockmaker always came to wind up the clocks. Seeing him in the dining room, Oblonsky recollected a joke he had once made at the expense of this accurate, ball-headed clockmaker, and he smiled. The German, he has said, has been wound up for life to wind up clocks. Oblonsky was fond of a joke. Well, perhaps things will shape themselves. Shape themselves. That's a good phrase, he thought. I must use that. Matvey, he called. Will you and Mary arrange everything for Anna in the little sitting room, he added, when Matvey appeared. Yes, sir. Oblonsky put on his fur coat and then went out into the porch. Will you be home to dinner, sir, said Matvey, as he showed him out. I'll see. Oh, and here's some money, said he, taking a ten-ruble note out of his pocketbook. Will it be enough? Enough or not, we shall have to manage, that's clear, said Matvey, closing the carriage door and stepping back into the porch. Meanwhile, Daria, after soothing the child, knowing from the sound of the carriage wheels that her husband had gone, returned to her bedroom. It was her only place of refuge from household cares. Even now, during the few minutes she had spent in the nursery, the English governess and Matriana had found time to ask some questions that could not be put off and which she alone could answer. What should the children wear when they went out? Ought they to have milk? Should not a new cook be sent for? Oh, do leave me alone, she cried. And returning to her bedroom, she sat down where she had sat when talking with her husband. Locking together her thin fingers, on which her rings hung loosely, she went over in her mind the whole of their conversation. Gone. And how did he finish with her, she thought. Is it possible that he still sees her? Why didn't I ask him? No. It's impossible to be reunited. Even if we go on living in the same house, we are strangers. Strangers forever, she repeated, especially emphasizing the word that was so dreadful to her. And how I loved him. Oh God, how I loved him. How I loved. And don't I love him now? Don't I love him more than ever? The most terrible thing. She did not finish the thought, because Matriana thrust her head in at the door. Hadn't I better send for my brother, she said. 
After all, he can cook a dinner, or else the children will go without food till six o'clock, as they did yesterday. All right, I'll come and see about it in a moment. Has the milk been sent for? And Daria plunged into her daily cares, and for a time drowned her grief in them. Chapter 5 Oblonsky's natural ability had helped him to do well at school, but mischief and laziness had caused him to finish very low in his year's class. Yet in spite of his dissipated life, his unimportant service rank, and his comparative youth, he occupied a distinguished and well-paid post as head of one of the government boards in Moscow. This post he had obtained through Alexis Alexandrovich Karenin, his sister Anna's husband, who held one of the most important positions in the ministry to which that Moscow board belonged. But even if Karenin had not nominated his brother-in-law for that post, Stevia Oblonsky, through one of a hundred other persons, brothers, sisters, relations, cousins, uncles or aunts, would have obtained this or a similar post with a salary of some 6,000 rubles a year, which he needed because in spite of his wife's substantial means, his affairs were in a bad way. Half Moscow and half Petersburg were his relations, or friends. He was born among those who were or who became the great ones of this world. One third of the official world, the older men, were his father's friends and had known him in petticoats. He was on intimate terms with another third and was well acquainted with the last third. Consequently, the distributors of earthly blessings, such as government posts, grants, concessions and the like, were all his friends. They could not overlook one who belonged to them, so that Oblonsky had no real difficulty in obtaining a lucrative post. He had only not to raise any objections, not be envious, not to quarrel, and not to take offence. All things which, being naturally good-tempered, he never did. It would have seemed to him ridiculous had he been told that he would not get a post with the salary he required, especially as he did not demand anything extraordinary. He only wanted what other men of his age and set were getting, and he could fill such an office as well as anybody else. Oblonsky was not only liked by everyone who knew him for his kind and joyous nature and his undoubted honesty, but there was something in him, in his handsome and bright appearance, his beaming eyes, black hair and eyebrows, and his white and rosy complexion, that had a physical effect on those he met, making them feel friendly and cheerful. Ah, Steve Oblonsky, here he is, said almost everyone he met, smilingly. Even if in conversation with him sometimes caused no special delight, still the next day or the next, everyone was as pleased as ever to meet him. It was the third year that Oblonsky had been head of that government department in Moscow, and he had won not only the affection, but also the respect of his fellow officials, subordinates, chiefs and all who had anything to do with him. The chief qualities that had won him this general respect in his office were, first, his extreme leniency, founded on a consciousness of his own defects. Secondly, his true liberalism, not that of which he read in his paper, but that which was in his blood and made him treat all men alike, whatever their rank or official position. Thirdly, and chiefly, his complete indifference to the business he was engaged on, in consequence of which he was never carried away by enthusiasm and never made mistakes. Having arrived at his destination, Oblonsky, respectfully followed by the doorkeeper bearing his portfolio, entered his little private room, put on his uniform, and came out into the office. The clerks and attendants all rose and bowed cheerfully and respectfully. Oblonsky walked quickly, as was his wont, to his place, shook hands with the members and sat down. He chatted and joked just as much as was proper, and then turned to business. No one could determine better than he the limits of freedom, simplicity and formality necessary for the pleasant transaction of business. The secretary came up with the papers, cheerfully and respectfully, like everybody in Oblonsky's office, and remarked in the familiarly liberal tone introduced by Oblonsky. After all, we've managed to get that information from the Pensa Provincial Office. Here, will you please? Got it at last, said Oblonsky, holding this paper down with his finger. Well, gentlemen, and the sitting commenced. If they only knew, he thought, bowing his head gravely as he listened to a report, how like a guilty little boy the president was half an hour ago. And his eyes sparkled while the report was being read. Till two o'clock the business was to continue uninterruptedly, but at two there was to be an adjournment for lunch. 
It was not quite two, when the large glass door suddenly swung open and someone came in. All the members from beneath the emperor's portrait and from behind the mirror of justice, glad of some distraction, looked toward the door. But the doorkeeper at once turned to the intruder and closed the door behind him. When the report had been read, Oblonsky rose, stretching himself, and paying tribute to the liberalism of the times, took out a cigarette before leaving the office to go to his private room. Two of his colleagues, Nikitin, an old hard-working official, and Grinievich, a gentleman of the bedchamber, followed him out. We shall have time to finish after lunch, said Oblonsky. Plenty of time, said Nikitin. He must be a precious rogue, that foeman, said Grinievich, referring to one of those concerned in the case under consideration. Oblonsky made a face at these words, thereby indicating that it is not right to form an opinion prematurely, and did not reply. Who was it came in? he asked the doorkeeper. Some man came in without permission, Your Excellency, when I wasn't looking. He asked for you. I told him, when the members come out, then. Where is he? Perhaps he has gone out into the hall. He was walking about there just now. That's him, said the doorkeeper, pointing to a strongly built, broad-shouldered man with a curly beard, who, without taking off his sheepskin cap, was running lightly and quickly up the worn steps of the stone staircase. A lanky official, going down with a portfolio, stopped with a disapproving look at the feet of the man running upstairs, and then glanced inquiringly at Oblonsky, who was standing at the top of the stairs. His kindly face, beaming over the gold, embroidered collar of his uniform, grew still more radiant when he recognized the man who was coming up. Yes, it's he, Lievin, at last, he said, scrutinizing the approaching Lievin with a friendly, mocking smile. How is it you deem to look me up in this den, he asked, and not contented with pressing his friend's hand, he kissed him. Been here long? I've only just arrived, and I'm very anxious to see you, answered Lievin, looking round with constraint and yet crossly and uneasily. Well then, come into my room, said Oblonsky, who knew his friend's self-conscious and irritable shyness, and seizing him by the arm, he led him along as if past some danger. Oblonsky was on intimate terms with almost all his acquaintances men of sixty and lads of twenty, actors, ministers of state, tradesmen and lords-in-waiting, so that a great many people on familiar terms with him stood at the two extremes of the social ladder and would have been much surprised to know that they had something in common through Oblonsky. He was on familiar terms with everybody he drank champagne with, and he drank champagne with everybody. But when in the presence of his subordinates, he happened to meet any of his disreputable pals, as he jocularly called them, he was able, with his innate tact, to minimize the impression such a meeting might leave on their minds. Lievin was not a disreputable pal, but Oblonsky felt that Lievin imagined he might not care to show their intimacy in the presence of the subordinates, and that was why he hurried him into his private room. Lievin and Oblonsky were almost of the same age, and with Lievin, Oblonsky was on familiar terms not through champagne only. Lievin had been his comrade and friend in early youth, and they were fond of one another as friends who have come together in early youth often are, in spite of the difference in their characters and tastes. Yet, as often happens between men who have chosen different pursuits, each, while in argument justifying the other's activity, despised it in the depth of his heart. Each thought that his own way of living was a real life, and that the life of his friend was illusion. Oblonsky could not repress a slightly sarcastic smile at the sight of Levin. How many times had he already seen him arriving in Moscow from the country where he did something that what it was Oblonsky could never quite understand or feel any interest in? Lievin came to Moscow, always excited, always in a hurry, rather shy, and irritated by his own shyness, and usually with totally new and unexpected views of things. Oblonsky laughed at all at this, and yet liked it. Similarly, Lievin in his heart despised the town life his friend was leading and his official duties, which he considered futile and ridiculed. But the difference was that Oblonsky, doing as everyone else did, laughed with confidence and good humour, while he even laughed uncertainly and sometimes angrily. We have long been expecting you, said Oblonsky, entering his private room and releasing Levin's arm, as if to show that here all danger was past. I'm very, very glad to see you, continued he. Well, how are you, eh? When did you arrive? Lievin looked silently at the faces of the two strangers, Oblonsky's colleagues, and especially at the hands of the elegant Grinevich, 
with such long white fingers and such long yellowish nails curving at the points, and such large glittering sleeve links, that evidently his hands occupied his whole attention and deprived him of freedom of thought. Oblonsky at once noticed Levin's look and smiled. Oh, of course, let me introduce you, he said. My colleagues, Philippe Ivanich Nikitin, Mikhail Stanislavich Grinevich, then turning to Levin, Konstantin Dmitrich Levin, an active member of the Zemso, one of the new sort, a gymnast who lifts a hundred weight and a half with one hand, a cattle breeder, a sportsman, my friend, and a brother of Sergius Ivanich Koshnishev. Very pleased, said the old official. I have the honor of knowing your brother, Sergius Ivanich, said Grinevich, holding out his narrow hand with the long fingernails. Levin frowned, shook hands coldly, and immediately turned to Oblonsky. Though Levin had great respect for his stepbrother, an author known throughout Russia, he hated to be regarded not as Konstantin Levin, but as a brother of the famous Kosnyshev. No, I am no longer on the Zenthal. I have quarreled with a lot of them and don't attend their meetings anymore, said he, addressing his friend. Quick work, said Oblonsky with a smile. What was it all about? It's a long story. I'll tell you some other time, said Levin, but at once began telling it. To put it in a nutshell, I have come to the conclusion that there is and can be no such thing as Zenthal work, he said, speaking as someone had just offended him. On the one hand, it's simply playing. They play at being a parliament, and I am neither young enough nor old enough to amuse myself with toys. On the other hand, he hesitated. It's a means of getting pelf for the provincial coterie. We used to have guardianships and judgeships as soft jobs, and now we've zensos, not bribes, but unearned salaries. He went on as warmly as if he had just been contradicted. Aha. I see you've reached another new phase, a conservative one this time, said Oblonsky. However, we'll talk about that later. Yes, later. But I want to see you, said the Avon, gazing with aversion at Greenavage's hand. Oblonsky's smile was hardly perceptible. Didn't you tell me you would never again put on Western European clothes, he asked, surveying Levin's new suit, evidently made by a French tailor. That's it, you're in a new phase. Levin suddenly blushed, not as grown-up people blush, who hardly notice it themselves, but as boys blush, who are aware that their shyness is ridiculous, and therefore feel ashamed of it, and blush still more, almost to tears. It was so strange to see that intelligent, manly face in such a childish condition, that Oblonsky left off looking at him. Where shall we see one another? You know it is very, very important for me to have a talk with you, said Levin. Oblonsky seemed to consider. Well, suppose we go to lunch at Gurin's and have a talk there. I'm free till three. No, said Levin, after a moment's consideration. I have to go somewhere else. Well then, let's dine together. Dine? But I've got nothing particular to say, only a word or two, to ask you something. We can have a talk some other time. Well, tell me the word or two now, and we'll talk at dinner. The two words are, however, it's nothing particular, said the Avon, and his face became almost vicious in his efforts to overcome his shyness. What are the Shabatskys doing? All going on as usual? Oblonsky, who had long known that the Avon was in love with his Oblonsky's sister-in-law, Kitty, smiled very slightly and his eyes sparkled merrily. You spoke of two words, but I can't answer in two because... Excuse me a moment. The secretary came in, though with a certain modest consciousness, common to all secretaries, of his superiority to his chief in knowledge of business affairs, approached Oblonsky with some papers, and on the plea of asking a question, began to explain some difficulty. Oblonsky, without hearing him to the end, put his hand in a kindly way on the secretary's sleeve, and softening his remark with a smile, said, No, please do it as I said. And, having in a few words explained his view of the matter, he pushed the paper away and said finally, Yes, please do it that way, Nikitich. The secretary went out, abashed. Ligavin, who during Oblonsky's talk with the secretary had quite overcome his shyness, stood leaning both arms on the back of a chair and listening with ironical attention. I don't understand at all, he remarked. What don't you understand? asked Oblonsky with his usual merry smile as he took out a cigarette. 
He expected Leaven to say something eccentric. I don't understand what you're doing, said Leaven, shrugging his shoulders. How can you do it seriously? Why not? Because there's nothing to do. That's how it seems to you, but really we're overwhelmed with work. On paper? Ah, well. You've a gift for that sort of thing, added Leaven. You mean I'm deficient in something? Perhaps, said Leaven. But all the same, I admire your dignity, and I'm proud that my friend is such a great man. But all the same, you've not answered my question, he added, making a desperate effort to look Oblonsky straight in the face. All right, all right, wait a bit, and you'll be in the same position yourself. It's all very well for you. You have 3,000 Asiatans in the Karazin district, with such muscles, and are as fresh as a 12-year-old girl. But still, you'll be joining us yourself someday. Now, about what are you asking? Nothing has changed, but it's a pity you've stopped away so long. Why? asked Levin in alarm. Oh, nothing, answered Oblonsky. We'll talk it over later on. What has brought you here, specially? We'll talk about that too later on, said Levin, and again blushed to his very ears. All right, that's natural enough, said Oblonsky. Well, you know, I'd ask you to come to us, but my wife is not very well. Let's see. If you want to meet them, you'll be sure to find them in the zoological gardens from four to five. Kitty skates there. Go there and I'll call for you, and we'll dine somewhere together. Splendid. Well then, au revoir. Mind you, don't forget. I know you. You may rush off back to the country, shouted Oblonsky after him. That'll be all right, said Levin, and left the room, only recollecting when already at the door that he had not taken leave of Oblonsky's colleagues. He seems a very energetic man, said Grinievich, when Levin was gone. Yes, my dear fellow, said Oblonsky, shaking his head. And he's a lucky man. Three thousand Asiatans in the Karazin district. His life before him in such freshness, not like some of us. What have you to complain of? All things are wretched, miserable, said Oblonsky, and sighed heavily. Good night.